0: I'm going to read just a portion of the letter that was just read, uh, the Paul's letter to Philemon, um, just to have it right before us in our minds before the sermon here. So this is uh, Philemon starting in verse 8. Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to both you and me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on behalf uh, during my imprisonment of the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord." For this perhaps is why he was parted uh, uh, from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is the word of God and all God's people said. You may be seated. What a privilege it is to preach on this... Very brief New Testament letter. This is a remarkable letter in many ways. J.B. Lightfoot expresses the opinion of many when he says that, quote, as an expression of simple dignity or refined courtesy of large sympathy and of warm personal affection, the epistle to Philemon stands unrivaled, end quote. John Knox, not the Scottish reformer, but an early 19th century Bible scholar of the same name, lodged the letter as, quote, one of the most charming letters ever written. Ever written. Donald Guthrie says that it, quote, breathes the great-hearted tenderness of the Apostle, end quote. Robert Jewett calls it, quote, one of the most subtle letters in world history, an expression of Paul's ambassadorial style, end quote. These statements represent the kind of high praise due this little letter that we have in our Bibles. But at the same time, though it is heartwarming and fruitful, for the serious interpreter, this little letter proves also to be a frustration There are a lot of unanswered questions that leave us in the dark about things we would really like to know regarding the situation behind it. On the veneer, we wonder why it's even in the Bible. It seems like we have accidentally intercepted some personal correspondence about a very touchy matter and that we shouldn't really be privy to the conversation going on about it. We're outsiders. David Garland describes the same sentiment this way. He says, quote, Reading Philemon is like coming into the middle of a movie and having to catch up on who the characters are and what has already happened in the plot and then having to leave before the end, end quote. That is frustrating. We don't know where Paul is imprisoned. It probably is either in Rome or Ephesus if we put the pieces of the puzzle or try to put the pieces of the the puzzle together. But the text doesn't tell us. But even more uncertain is how, in fact, Onesimus was even able to locate Paul under the circumstances. Onesimus is a runaway slave seeking out an imprisoned apostle. This would present incredible practical challenges. And we are left to wonder how, beyond a general appeal to God's providence, these two men crossed paths. We know how generally Paul handles this very delicate issue that arose between Philemon and Onesimus. We see it in his language. But we are left without knowing for sure whether these two men were ever truly reconciled in the Lord. So as we approach the letter, we need to keep in mind that um, there are a lot of things we don't know. But that shouldn't uh, distract us from the message of this letter. There are also some false assumptions that we may be in danger of making at the outset. And so I want to just mention a few of these before we get into the text a little. Um, The first assumption I think we need to avoid is that simply because the letter is brief, its theological content must therefore be thin and lack profundity. That is simply not true. Perhaps more than any other letter of Paul, this letter demonstrates theology hitting the ground. This letter communicates a concrete rubber-meets-the-road message while the rhetoric is so carefully nuanced and sensitive. It is remarkable in the way it exemplifies the application of universal Christian principles to a very particular and precarious situation. Its brevity does not diminish the power of its message in any way. It's also an exquisite example of the wise application of the gospel to a complex social and moral situation affecting the particular relationship between a master and his slave, but by implication also, the house church to which they belong. There is much to learn from this letter. In it, the gospel is fully on display if we are careful to see it. Another assumption we have to avoid is that personal matters in the believing community have no corporate implications. This letter is not simply addressed to just Philemon. This letter is addressed to his household and to the church that meets in his house. This is an open letter to Philemon about a very private matter that has corporate implications. What, what Philemon chooses to do with Onesimus uh, matters for the church. So, underneath this, there is implied that there is a corporate accountability to Philemon's action in this very personal matter. And finally, because slavery is a prominent feature of this letter's historical setting, it's important to say something about it here at the outset, but without delving into all the complexities that topic assumes. That would go well beyond the scope of this sermon. Nevertheless, we must be careful to avoid the error of thinking that the practice of slavery in the first century Greco-Roman context is strictly analogous to more recent iterations of the institution of slavery in world history. In our minds, we cannot help but imagine the sprawling cotton plantations of the American South at the mention of slavery, or the Hollywood interpretations of its romance or despair. But it would be anachronistic to project our modern experiences and national history onto the practice of slavery in the first century Greco-Roman context. Answering the question of what slavery was like then is, well, as they say, it's complicated. The bottom line is that there are significant differences in the origins and function of slavery in Paul's day as compared to the modern experience, though it was still a dehumanizing and wicked institution. So there's a lot of things we don't know, but what do we know about the situation It turns out that what we do know, though incomplete, is still quite sufficient to apprehend the explosive theology of this little letter. And I want to tease that out in the sermon today. We know that Philemon was a wealthy Roman citizen from the city of Colossae, a small town located on the southern bank of the Lycus River at the foot of Mount Cadmus in Asia Minor. That would be roughly modern-day Turkey. It is likely that Philemon met, during, uh, met Paul during Paul's stay in Ephesus that we read about in Acts 19. And it is reasonable to infer that Philemon became a Christian convert there. Subsequently, we know that Paul's co-worker Epaphras started a Christian community in Colossae and Philemon became the leader and host of a house church there. Paul mentions Epaphras' role in the work in this work at the beginning of his letter, To the Colossians. Now Philemon, being a wealthy patriarch, owned slaves. That was common for men in his socio-economic position. This was a very, very common practice. It would not have raised an eyebrow. Slavery as a social institution was well established in the Greco-Roman world. It was simply assumed, and was simply a cultural feature. As an aside, one of the things that really bothers some modern readers of Philemon living on on this side of the transatlantic slave trade and the practice of chattel slavery in the American South is that Paul never addresses the issue of slavery directly in this letter. Here, they say, is Paul's golden opportunity to denounce slavery once and for all as a moral and social evil, yet he remains silent. But this silence should not be interpreted as a lack of regard for the evils of slavery. Rather, it is actually an indication of a more profound answer to the question of social evils like slavery, one which instructs us on how to carefully apply the gospel to such complex moral practices that are antithetical to the gospel ethic. Paul recognized that slavery is a symptom of a deeper disease, and that the, the cure goes, much beyond, go, goes well beyond the surface. And that the abolition of social evil really gets down to the human heart. And we'll see this in his letter to Philemon. So one of Philemon's slaves was named Onesimus, as we see in the letter. And at some point, Philemon and Onesimus had come into serious conflict with one another. The inference is that Onesimus had wronged Philemon in some way. We don't know exactly what way, perhaps by theft or by cheating. There are multiple theories about what actually happened. The text isn't clear. Whatever the case, it was aggravated when Onesimus chose to run away from his master. Now, a fugitive slave was in this world was considered a criminal under Roman law. And the ultimate legal penalty was death. Eventually and seemingly miraculously, Onesimus found his way to Paul in prison and became a convert and a beloved assistant to Paul. So much so that Paul wanted to keep him as a companion, but knew that sending Onesimus back was the right thing to do. Under the circumstances, Paul finds himself in a very difficult and delicate situation. The gospel demands that Philemon not only forgive Onesimus for his offense, but receive him as a brother in Christ, that is, as a man of equal status in the church. That would have been absolutely unheard of in his day. In the Greco-Roman worldview, it would be considered logically and practically impossible. Slaves were by definition inferior and indispensable Uh, excuse me, dispensable beings. As a Roman patriarch, Philemon would have viewed Onesimus as nothing more than, in Aristotle's terminology, a living tool whose worth was only measured in terms of his usefulness. The underlying ethic of slavery is always utilitarianism. But as a Christian... Philemon is subject to a new ethical paradigm that is completely and utterly foreign to the cultural norms of his day. How does Paul help Philemon see this and persuade him to receive Onesimus now as a brother? He does it through the wise and winsome application of the gospel, demonstrating that because of what God has done in Christ, there are demands on Philemon's character that go well beyond what he could have imagined possible. The very fact that Paul is writing a letter on behalf of a runaway slave, something unheard of in the ancient world, is reason enough to pay attention to the details. Paul skillfully employs careful rhetorical strategies to pour balm on resentment and to dissolve resistance from Philemon in this letter he recognizes that one does not go about passing judgments on another's slave to his own master he stands or falls says paul in romans 14:4 4. most parents today would resent someone else including a close friend offering unsolicited advice on the discipline of their children in the first century everyone accepted as inalienable the right of masters to do as they please with their property their slaves They would naturally bristle if anyone tried to meddle in that relationship. Paul's politeness strategy eases the tension and it diminishes the cost of yielding to his his wishes. There is no disgrace in giving way to a friend who serves God at such cost to himself. Remember, Paul's in prison for the gospel. Paul is not simply using clever tactics to diffuse a volatile situation and to simply persuade Philemon to see things his way. He is doing that, but he's not just doing that. His purpose is swaddled in a basic theological conviction about what it means for us to be in Christ. A key phrase in Philemon is the phrase, in Christ. We see it in verse 8, verse 20, verse 23. Uh, an associate uh, associated term, in the Lord, appears in verses 16 and 20. And then we have the phrase, unto Christ, that appears in verse 6. This letter shows how Paul applies this, this abstract mystical concept of being in Christ, what does that mean, to a very concrete, real-world, personal relationship. The caste and honor system that regulated social relations in Paul's day, Philemon's day, Onesimus' day, was inimical to Christian ethics. If Philemon yields to Paul's request and does more than he asks, it shows how the truth of the gospel breaks down social barriers and dethrones cultural indoctrination. Now, in verses 1 through 7, Paul prepares Philemon for this impossible request. Um, Some might call it buttering him up. I wouldn't call it that. He's not buttering him up, he's making an appeal um, on the basis of the gospel. But notice at the outset that Paul identifies himself not as an apostle in this letter, as he often does, but as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Let's be in tune with how Paul implicitly identifies himself with Onesimus, focusing on his legal status as a prisoner under Roman law and Onesimus' status as a slave under Roman law. This will be an important component of Paul's rhetorical strategy and for the theological interpretation of this letter. In other words, this identification is not incidental. It is intentional. Paul then offers a prayer of thanksgiving for Philemon. And the way he has exemplified Christian charity and grace in uh, verses 4 through 7, he says, I thank my God always when I remember you, Philemon, in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing, That is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. I'm sure Philemon was flattered. Well, thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. I've been trying hard. I've been trying hard to be a good witness, to be an upright man. But in verse 6, Paul gets to the heart of what he's really after. He says, and I pray... That the sharing of your faith, the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now that's packed in there like Paul likes to do. But focus on the word sharing here. The key word is sharing, sometimes rendered partnership. The Greek word behind this is koinonia, the practice of receiving something together and participating in the sharing of it communally. Koinonia. So in context, Paul is reminding Philemon in this prayer that faithfulness to Christ entails that followers of Jesus are equal partners in the sharing, in the koinonia of God's love and grace in that community. Thus, for Paul, koinonia is not simply a good idea to be pondered. Oh yeah, that sounds like a good idea, get together, share things. But for him, it's a living reality to be practiced. He doesn't want Philemon to just believe in koinonia as an idea, but to put it into practice, particularly in how he receives his fugitive slave back home. You can see how this thickens very quickly. At this point in the letter, Philemon does not yet know that Paul will be asking him to practice koinonia with respect to his reception of Onesimus. He might have well been, oh, that sounds great. I like koinonia. We've actually already been doing that. Um, But Paul's theological trajectory has been set. As our overly individualistic culture exercises its influence more and more on the Christian church, many insist that they are free to manage their own lives without any thought to what other Christians might think of how it might affect them. We tend to see the church more, as in the words of one commentator, quote, a voluntary association of people who happen to hold the same religious views, quote. A voluntary association of people who happen to hold the same religious views. Is that how we think of the church? Our church? Perhaps we wouldn't express it in those terms, but do our practices and attitudes reveal the koinonia to which Paul refers to in his letter and appeal to Philemon? It's a high calling. Paul understood the church to be something far more communal than what we typically imagine, where two households, the natural and the spiritual, intersect with one another. That's Paul's vision for the church. Because the gospel requires it. The notion of going to church or doing church is foreign to the biblical witness. Biblical theology teaches that we are the church. We don't do church. We are the church. And what we do as individual Christians has a direct effect on our community for better or worse. The way Philemon responds to an unfaithful slave, a very private and personal matter, would have immediate ramifications for the entire church community meeting in his house. So having situated the issue, Paul now moves on to make his reason for writing very clear. Verses 10 through 12. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending him, sending my very heart. Now here, Paul um, so carefully eases the tension by a little wordplay, and this is only really uh, accessible through the original, uh, the Greek. In fact, Paul crafts a brilliant double pun in these verses in a parenthetical statement. This is wonderful, so delightful, and powerful. So the name Onesimus in Greek means useful. Seems like an appropriate name for a slave. Hey, useful, go fetch some water. Okay, And it was, not, it was a common name for slaves at the time. But think about what Paul's doing with his name. Slaves bore the names that either slave dealers gave them to extol their wares when being sold or that their masters would give them to express their hopes and how they hoped they would be. Formerly he was useless to you, Paul says, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. So Paul takes the wordplay still to another level. Formerly he was not Onesimus, but now he's become the true Onesimus, Onesimus to you and me. But he goes a step further. The word useless in Greek is akrestos akrestos a c h r e s t o s the word christless is akrestos a c h r i s t o s a letter difference useless akrestos christless Christos. and they would be pronounced exactly the same different spelling same pronunciation Onesimus was not useful, he was a Christos, he was not useful, he was without Christ. But when he became a Christian, however, he became euchrestos, E-U-C-H-R-E-S-T-O-S. He became useful. So Onesimus was useless without Christ, but now that he is in Christ, he has become truly Onesimus, his namesake. He is useful to you and to me. So Philemon's slave returns as the slave of Christ, having found his true identity. That is beautiful. So, in a clever wordplay, Paul completely undermines the utilitarian ethic of slavery. And he has redefined it in terms of Christian redemption. In a pun. Mr. Alders, I think you would appreciate that. (laughs) Paul also refers to Onesimus in the most endearing terms. He is a son to Paul. Paul's very heart. Think about how provocative this must have sounded to Philemon. Philemon. You've been harboring my runaway slave that has done me wrong, and now you're sending him back and calling him your very heart? Give me a break. What is is more, Paul is not just asking Philemon to forgive him, but to count him as a brother. Don't just forgive his wrong and put him back to work. Count him now as a brother, as part of the family, Just as Paul had done in calling him a son. Verse 16 brings the appeal to a very fine point. Receive Onesimus no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Paul gently presses Philemon further in this appeal by pulling a brilliant move. Remember the koinonia that Paul praised Philemon for in his opening prayer? Well... If Philemon is really in Koinonia fellowship with Paul, they share this grace that God has given them in Christ, and Onesimus is Paul's son in the faith, what's the logical conclusion? Then it follows that Philemon should now receive Onesimus as he would Paul. And that's exactly what Paul requests of him. Receive him as you would me. Remember that as an apostle, Paul possessed the authority to command Philemon to behave according to his instruction. But Paul makes it clear that this is not the basis of his appeal. Verse 14, "But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be compulsion uh, n- might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. Like a wise and judicious father he wants Philemon himself to recognize and exercise the gospel principle in the matter as a way of learning the wisdom of reconciliation for himself. It's easy to say, I forgive you. The words are easy. But to have true reconciliation God's way requires humility and a broken spirit. In other words, Paul is leading the proverbial horse to water this horse named Philemon has to drink. In fact, in the next verse, he suggests that this may be providentially the very reason Onesimus ran away to begin with, so that Philemon could experience the power of the gospel concretely and that an entirely new category of spiritual relationship could be created between these two men, radically affecting the spiritual community in which they both lived and ultimately spreading throughout the world. There is no question about the compelling power of the gospel. It's almost irresistible. It is irresistible. Those who claim the gospel, however, must be careful how they use and proclaim it. Coercion is out of harmony even contradictory to the content and the spirit of the gospel. Paul walks a tight wire here, but he keeps his integrity no doubt he is tempted to make the demands of philemon who felt deeply in his debt to paul and paul mentions this and don't forget uh, you owe me your very life do me a favor and don't forget how much you owe me but paul resists he mentions it but he he resists though i might be very bold in christ to command you what is fitting for yet for love's sake i'm going to appeal to you for love's sake any who would share the good news and live the gospel should note this. Coercion does not validate but violates the gospel. Was John with the disciples in Jerusalem when Paul visited there? Did he share the teachings of Jesus with Paul? Did Paul remember the word of Jesus quoted by John? No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. John 15, 15. That is the mood of his appeal to Philemon. Someone defined love as the uh, uh, as the mood of believing in miracles. Love is much more than that, but it is is at least that and always that. Why? Love believes in miracles because love itself is a miracle. That is the reason coercion has no place in sharing the gospel. Only love, properly defined. When we can relate to persons in such a way and love them to the degree we can call them my friend, miracles really do happen by the grace of God. Paul is willing to risk the working out of love. He's willing to let the gospel do its work in Philemon's heart. Love can be invited, but not compelled, so he trusts what Philemon's love will do in his relationship with Onesimus. It's a powerful lesson for us. This is wisdom. There is one other thing to be noted in this passage. In the fellowship of Christ, we cannot take God's grace for granted. Nor can we presume upon the grace and generosity of others. One can imagine the debate going on in Paul's mind in verses 13 and 14. He was trying to persuade himself that it was right for him to keep Onesimus. He wanted him there. Rather than send him back to Philemon, Onesimus was an invaluable helper. Paul needed him. He had become one of Paul's most beloved friends. So to send him back was like sending his own heart. He knew that had Philemon been with him, he would have spared nothing to be of service to Paul. Was Philemon not there in the person of his slave as a representative? So Paul's mind churned on this, it seems. Why should he not keep Onesimus? But Paul could not be fooled by that rationalization. He would not presume on Philemon's generosity in that way he would not force an expression of love love could work fully only in the context of freedom philemon alone could decide what love required of him in relation to onesimus as well as to paul so at the heart of this letter at the heart of the gospel for paul is the ministry of reconciliation as he says in second corinthians 5:16 through 19 from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, our translation says something like he is a new creation, but in the Greek it's if anyone is in Christ, new creation. We have to fill in the gaps to make it sound good. but That's not what the Greek reads. If you're in Christ, new creation with the clap. <laughs> so that's, that's, That's the power of this statement. Christ means new creation, equal. And see how this is working out in this letter to Philemon. This is remarkable. He's taking all these abstract notions that we can ponder and uh, have sentiments about, but he's bringing it to bear in this highly complex, emotional situation. This is the word of God at work in a real community. So, all of this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This letter could only be written and received by one who has experienced salvation in Christ. Only the mind under the influence of the Spirit of Christ could entertain such a solution as this. It is only because of what Christ has done that it's even possible. Now, in closing the letter, Paul continues to subtly narrow the possibility of Philemon escaping from his Christian obligation here. Um, In verse 21, he expresses confidence that Philemon will do even more than what he's asking. And I can imagine Philemon scratching his head and going, Okay, Paul, but... My goodness, you've already asked me to do the impossible. What is is more for me to do? But Paul leaves that door open. He also tells Philemon, and I always chuckle at this, Prepare a room for me, because when I get out of prison, I may be stopping by. At that point, if Paul does, in fact, do that, uh, don't you think Philemon gets the hint, right? At some time in the future, Paul may swing by, at which time it will be utterly clear to him whether or not Philemon and Onesimus are truly reconciled in the faith and whether Onesimus really enjoys the status of being Philemon's brother in the Lord. Philemon's reputation as an honorable Christian man and a church leader hangs on whether he follows Christ in this matter or not. And Paul's going to come check up on him. We don't know how this story ends. Doug Wilson makes a a pretty uh, convincing argument that it ends very well and that Onesimus may even become to be, there's a tradition that says uh, the Onesimus uh, who became a bishop later in Asia Minor was actually Onesimus the slave. Now, much of that is speculation, um, uh, but I find uh, uh, Pastor Wilson's argument compelling. Um, We don't know how the story ends, but we are hopeful because we know how the gospel works in people's hearts and lives. As we consider the message uh, at the end here, I want to just uh, say a few things about the, the letter of Philemon as a parable of the gospel, which is the title of my sermon. I mentioned at the outset that this letter is about Paul taking a theological concept, the gospel, and applying it to this particular, bringing it to bear on this specific, personal, precarious issue that arose in a particular place, Colossae, at a particular time, mid-first century, among a particular group of Christians that that were meeting in a house. It's theology hitting the ground. And it's the only letter of Paul in which he does not talk about the gospel. Paul doesn't talk about the gospel. He skillfully applies the gospel in this letter. That's its worth, giving us a model of how to address similar issues informed by wisdom and grace and regenerate hearts. Paul wants Philemon to see Onesimus as God sees Onesimus. He is parsing out for Philemon the truth expressed in his letter to the Colossians, which happens to be Philemon's church. Verses uh, chapter three verses ten eleven in Colossians says you have put on the new self or sometimes the new humanity, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, uh, Greek and Jew. There is not circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Onesimus is a new creation in Christ and is therefore Philemon's brother. His social and his legal relationship to Philemon may still be that of slave to master in the meantime, but his spiritual status is that of brother and fellow heir of all the benefits of being a child of God in the household of faith. Paul cannot undo Roman law. He doesn't have the power to do that, but what he can do is allow the gospel to take root in Philemon's heart and household Where under the sanctifying work of the Spirit, he can learn to love a rebel slave as a brother. Spiritual regeneration in individuals, not political machines, will set in motion true social reform. We see in this scenario the logic of the gospel played out. This is Galatians 3.28 in action. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, you are all in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Paul's logic is a gospel logic. But at the At the historical level, this is about two Christians reconciling with one another under strenuous circumstances. At the level of inspired scripture, this is a proclamation of the gospel story itself. Think about it. In this way, Philemon is kind of a parable. Like Onesimus, you and I are slaves who have rebelled against our master. And in so doing, we have committed a crime punishable by death. Yet in God's mysterious and providential plan, while still fugitives, we were overtaken in our sin by the grace of the Son of the living God, Jesus Messiah. In him, we found redemption, having been brought from rebel slavery to sonship by adoption through an act of sincere reconciliation by our Master. Just as Philemon is expected to respond to Onesimus by refraining from enacting the merited punishment, forgiving the wrong, Christ our Lord has done the same for us. But it's here that the inadequacies of the parable to fully express the gospel become apparent. This doesn't get us all the way. Philemon can forgive Onesimus and exercise grace toward him, but he cannot take away the sin through propitiation. That is, Philemon's forgiveness does not function to atone for the wrong being forgiven. The curse of God on sin first pronounced in Genesis 2.17 would still stand. Ye shall surely die. So this corruption of human beings and the promise of death because of it presents, as it were, a problem for God, not for him, but from our perspective. How? uh, Athanasius calls this the divine dilemma. On the one hand, it would seem an affront to God's dignity, That his work should be undone. Forgiving sin without atonement. And it would seem unworthy of his goodness to let the creature he created in his image come to nothing. On the other hand, how could God go back on his word, on his curse? He has a curse and a promise. How do those come together? He had warned that they would die. Would it not be even a greater indignity for God to be made a liar? Now enter the word incarnate. Jesus, Messiah, God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, our federal head, God with us, the Son of Man, the last Adam. By dying in the flesh, he followed the divine dictate, ye shall surely die. But by virtue of the fullness of his divinity, death could not hold him. And because all human beings share the same human nature, all mankind was involved in his resurrection as an eternity was again made accessible to all. Now, through faith in the incarnate Word, human beings can recover the fullness of the image in which they were made. And in closing, Athanasius, I will uh, quote from Athanasius here. He draws an analogy between a uh, uh, he draws an analogy with this image of a portraiture. He says, "This you know what happens when a portrait that has been painted on a panel becomes obliterated through external stains." The artist does not throw away the panel, but the subject of the portrait has has to come and sit for it again. He has to be repainted. And then the likeness is redrawn over the same material. Even so it was with the all-holy Son of God. He, the image of the Father, came and dwelt in our midst in order that he might renew mankind made after himself. So, dear Christian... The Son of God came to sit again for his portrait. For it had been stained by sin and now it is restored. It is the restored image of God which has been stamped on our souls through the merits of Christ. Exchanging corruptible for incorruptible. God's judgment on sin is enacted not through punishment of those who are guilty but on the innocent Lamb of God. Herein lies the deepest and the grandest of paradoxes. It is precisely in the act of God's judgment meted out on Christ at the cross that sinners become justified and thereby are free to live as a new creation, forgiving others just as God in Christ forgave them. This is, this is the only theology that could make sense of the letter to Philemon. In his book, Grace and Practice, Paul Zoll makes this point. Without the atonement, the grace of God is like a beautiful dream. It's like a beautiful dream. If Christ had not died and forgiven the sins of Paul, Philemon, Onesimus, you, me, it doesn't make any sense to expect Philemon to receive Onesimus as a brother, and it doesn't make any sense for you to forgive me of my sins against you. Without the cross, reconciliation isn't real. It's only a sentimental dream. The imputation of Christ's righteousness to the sinner is a two sided coin. God credits to us that which is not ours. But that's only half the story. In order to do this, God credits to Christ what is not his. God credits to us that which is not ours, our redemption. But to accomplish that, God credits to Christ what is not his, our sin and the punishment of death it brings. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians 5.21 Paul tells Philemon, If Onesimus has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I will repay it. This is precisely what God has done for you and me in Christ. Stand in awe of this glorious gospel today and live as those who have been redeemed. Romans 6.13 says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, But listen to this, present yourselves to God, how? As those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Let's pray. O God, were it not for your gospel, we would be utterly and forever lost, enslaved to our sin and banished from the garden temple of, of our God. But now that Christ intercedes for us, we have the freedom to live lives of reconciliation and can experience the joy of watching your kingdom come on earth as it permeates our homes, our workplaces, our communities, and our church. May we be faithful, trusting in you, for you are ever faithful indeed. Amen. The Lord be with you. Uh, Last week when I was working on this sermon... Just thinking about a lot of the, the things that um, uh, this letter is so packed full of all kinds of things. I was listening to music as I like to do when I study and uh, um, I had some Advent music playing and uh, along the way, right in the middle of my, my studies, uh, the beloved and well-known nativity hymn, O Holy Night, started playing. We're all familiar with that, we've heard it many, many times, but I was particularly paying attention to the words for some reason. And, and I'm not making this up, by the way. This isn't just a good illustration. This actually happened. Uh, in the third and the last stanza of that hymn, a particular phrase stood out to me in a new way after having studied Philemon in some detail. And so as I read this third stanza, uh, stanza excuse me, I bet you can guess which one I'm referring to. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name all oppressions shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord, O praise his name forever. His power and glory evermore proclaim. Amen. This table before us, the Lord's table that he has set and invited us to is a table of reconciliation where slaves become brothers in Christ. So as we approach the table, let us be mindful of this. Let us be thankful and eat and drink together and remember the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. O God, the supreme mover, may we always be subordinate to you, be dependent upon you, be found in the path that you walk, and where your spirit moves, may we be there. You do not move men like stones, but you endue them with life, not to enable them to move without you, but in submission to you, the first mover. O Lord, we are astonished at the difference between what we receive from you and what we we deserve, between the state we are now in and our past state of gracelessness between the heaven we are bound for and the hell we deserve. And who made the difference but you, O God? You are deserving of total and eternal praise. We join the company of the heavenly host and sing, Holy, 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 who was and is and is to come. To you be honor and glory both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts, and establish you in every good work, word and work. Amen.